Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 142. Today's topic is Green New Jobs, Part 2. So we have a Green New Deal, and I'm always hard put to give a definition to the Green New Deal because there are different versions of the Green New Deal, but I look at it as kind of a revolution. I look at it as a a prescription for complete transformation of our society, a transformation from a society that benefits the few to a society that benefits the many. We certainly need that because climate change has come our way because of the decisions of the few. It's not because of the decisions of the many. This is not the world we would have chosen if we had been given a choice. In fact, a little known fact is that why do we all, why is the passenger automobile, the six passenger automobile, our primary mode of transportation? That was not chosen for us. I mean, that was not chosen by us, it was chosen for us. It's not a product of democratic decision-making, and it's not a product of a free market. It's a decision that was made for us in the late 40s and early 50s that was a combination of things, but it was a decision to build the interstate highway system because that is so much more profitable to auto companies and oil companies than is train travel. Doesn't mean we couldn't have cars, doesn't mean we wouldn't have had cars, but the decision to build the interstate highway system means that all of our transportation revolves around cars. Not because it benefits the many, because on average we spend $10,000 a year per car. How many of us would rather have part of that $10,000 back if it just meant getting around a little differently? How many of us would welcome the opportunity to have streets that are not so noisy and polluted? How many of us would welcome the opportunity to walk more and ride bikes more and have a cleaner, healthier, less polluted environment? So what the Green New Deal does is it shifts a lot of that decision-making from the few to the many. Because we believe that a true democratic majority is much wiser than a self-appointed autocracy who wants to make all of our decisions for us. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. And if you enjoy this content and want access to more of the same, then please go to theclimatereport.net where you can easily find more podcasts, playlists, and videos, as well as my blog. So the purpose of this series is to show all the job opportunities that the Green New Deal will create. But it's also to prepare our minds for a complete revolution, a complete transformation in the way we do things, a transformation in the way we make decisions as a democracy, a transformation in the way we go about our business, a transformation in the question of who has power in the workplace, a transformation in our attitudes as to what really matters. So, as we talked about last time, we need to ask the right questions, like what should our goals be? What is the purpose of government? 
How can we spend money better than we are spending it now? What myths and misconceptions tend to govern what we do and how we vote, or whether we vote? And given our goals, in what ways are we spending money unwisely? Let's look at one good example, a report that shows actually several examples of how we're spending money unwisely because the Green New Deal naysayers, they think they've nailed it when they say, oh, how are you going to pay for that? You know, as if to shift the burden of proof to people who want a better world instead of putting the burden of proof on the people who want a tired, old, polluting world that is leading us down a road that nobody wants to go. So here's a report from Oil Change International. The title of the report is Cashing In on All of the Above, U.S. Fossil Fuel Production Subsidies Under Obama. So this goes back a few years, but it's important that we go back a few years because we can't blame all of our problems on Trump. As much as my friends who are, fellow, who are mainstream Democrats would like to believe that Trump is the entire problem, I'm sorry, we have a problem that is systemic. We have a problem that exists irrespective of whether Democrats or Republicans are in the White House. We have a problem that exists irrespective of whether we have Democrats or Republicans controlling Congress. Here's some of what the report says. The United States federal and state governments gave away $21.6 billion in production and exploration subsidies to the oil, gas, and coal industries in 2013. So $21.6 billion. Do you think we can find a better way to spend $21.6 billion than giving it to oil and gas and coal industries? Continuing to read, at the federal level, only, largely due to increased oil and gas production, fossil fuel production and exploration subsidies have grown in value by 45% since President Obama took office in 2009. In other words, under the Obama administration, fossil fuel subsidies grew 45% from $12.7 billion to $18.5 billion as of 2014. Repeated attempts by the administration to reduce subsidies have failed, at least in part, because of the cozy relationship between Congress and the fossil fuel industry. More than $5 billion is spent by U.S. taxpayers for f annually for federal subsidies that encourage further exploration and development of new fossil fuel resources, resources we know we cannot afford to burn. So anyway, the point is that we are spending a lot of money on the wrong things. And it's not just the oil and gas industry. I have a list of, of other industries. We're subsidizing banks, partly by, you know, there was the bank bailout, but also we give the banks low interest loans and they take that and they make high interest loans with them. We subsidize agribusiness including the biotechnology and the GMO. We subsidize transnational restaurant corporations and retail corporations. And the list goes on and on and on. But what are the jobs and industries that need to be developed? What could we do with that same money? 
Well, we could develop solar power, and we cannot wait for the free market to do that for us, because we need to make a complete transformation within 10 years. That means that we need to be halfway there within five years. That means we need to be 10% of the way there in one year. So if you're a young person or a career changer, would you like to be a solar engineer? Would you like to be a solar installation technician? Would you like to have a business where you sell solar panels? In so doing, you would need to be able to respond to questions like this. What homeowners are good candidates for solar panels? What tax credits are available? Can I sell power to my neighbors or to the grid? How is battery power likely to develop in coming years? Because battery power is an important part of the equation. So we need people who are expert in addressing issues like this. We need to develop the industry that might be called battery power research and development. And what we don't want to do is just put money in the hands of big corporations and expand the bottom line for their shareholders. We want to put the money in the hands of people who can develop businesses selling batteries to the solar installers. So this can happen when we really take seriously the idea of public banks. Right now there are very few public banks. North Dakota is the only state in the union that has a public bank. And it's very popular. Of course, who hates public banks? It's the private banks that hate it. But if we had public banks, then they could be authorized to make low interest loans to qualifying businesses and qualifying nonprofits that do the work that needs to be done. Why is battery power research and development important? Because it makes solar and wind power more efficient and effective. The more we can store solar and wind power in batteries, the more we can do without fossil fuel generation. It's also important because this technology is not fixed. It is in process of developing. And it could be much further along five years from now than it is now, but that's partly a result of commitment to the industry instead of commitment to planes and bombs and drones that are designed to kill people. So a person who is skilled in this area needs to be able to answer questions like, you know, how much battery capacity should I get? when I install my solar panels, or if you're a community that is installing wind turbines, how much battery power should I get? Let's talk about having a societal commitment to the wind industry, the wind power generation industry, the windmill industry. What does a societal commitment look like? Well, you would be developing jobs and careers at the level of engineer, you would be developing jobs and careers at the level of technician. You would be developing jobs and careers at the level of urban planning. You would need people skilled in marketing and communications so that you could talk to people about what's involved in undertaking a project like this. People who are expert in this area need to be able to answer questions like what states and regions and localities should consider wind power? And to what extent will wind power develop in coming years? There's a Republican mayor in Texas by the name of Dale Ross who is 
thankfully becoming more famous all the time, but he's a Republican. You don't ordinarily associate Republicans with a lot of progress on renewable energy, but he says it was just a good business decision for his town. They've converted the entire town to 100% renewable energy. And they, it's just a good business decision. The people who were generating the power before, whether through coal or hydroelectric, the people who were generating the power before couldn't give them the right answers as far as how much the power was going to cost over the course of time. So they just decided to generate it through wind and, uh, wind and solar. And it was just a good business decision. There's a rare uh, Republican politician that is just honest. And I'm not saying Democrats are any better, but Republicans are wedded to this fraudulent philosophy of the free market. But the problem is they're not even consistent with that much of the time. There's so many instances in which they show by their actions and their policies that they don't believe in a free market. They just give lip service to a free market. So let's talk about another industry. Number four, state-of-the-art electric grid. So the idea here is that a system of electricity generation based on solar and wind is going to be what's called a distributed energy system. In other words, the generation of the energy is distributed over a geographic area. In other words, instead of getting all of your electricity from a very centralized location, such as a coal-burning power plant, you're getting it from countless thousands of solar panels on people's roofs. And you're also getting some of it from a wind farm. So the reason this requires a state-of-the-art electric grid is because wind is because sun is intermittent. Sometimes the sun shines and sometimes it doesn't. Wind is also intermittent. Sometimes the wind blows and sometimes it doesn't. So you need an energy grid that is very flexible in accommodating power coming from different sources at different times. In the foreseeable future, you probably also need, I hate to say it, but you need a fossil fuel burning plant that is somewhere nearby in case you go through an extended period of time with no sun or no wind. So that's why there's a need for a state-of-the-art electric grid. So let me remind you something I've said before, but it bears repeating often, and it, it bears, it warrants and justifies strong emphasis, and that is these industries we're talking about will generate more jobs per dollar spent than spending the same old money on fossil fuels. So when we talk about the smart grid, that will generate 12 jobs per million dollars spent. That's twice as many as spending the same money on natural gas and coal. Spending money on wind generates 13 jobs for every million dollars spent, which is also twice as much as spending that million dollars on natural gas and coal. Spending money on solar generates 14 jobs per million dollars spent. Spending money on building energy efficiency on things like insulation and smart thermostats. That creates 17 jobs for every million dollars spent. And spending money on mass transit and rail generates 22 jobs for every million dollars spent. 
email me at info at theclimatereport.net if you would like a link to that information. More of us need to be spreading information like that when the opportunity presents itself. Let's go to another industry, and that is number five, mass transit. So I did a whole three-part series on travel, which dealt with mass transit, and I feel like I made an adequate case that mass transit is going to be a much better way to get around. It needs to be clean. It needs to be readily available. It needs to have good routes. It needs to have make frequent stops. And it needs to be subsidized because as it is now, we spend on average $10,000 per year per automobile. So if a family has two or three automobiles, that's twenty dollars or $30,000 a year that we're spending on cars. So when people talk about mass transit being expensive, for one thing, it's not. It is not expensive in comparison to what we otherwise have to pay on cars and fuel. But cars are exactly what we need if the purpose of our system is to create profits for the 1%. Because that $10,000 a year you're spending on cars and fuel goes out of town to the top 1% of shareholders of auto companies and shareholders of oil companies, etc. But if the purpose of society is not to support the 1%, but rather the 99%, then we need mass transit because it's a much cheaper and better way to get around. We're going to have less noise, less pollution. It's much safer. So let's think about a train system for a city. You would think that that just takes so much planning and you have to build consensus and you have to tear up roads to put in trains and it seems like a headache and a nightmare and then when you get done with it who's going to ride the train but no that's going about it backwards here's how you start you have abundant bus transportation you have buses going where people need to go and you have them going there frequently and you have routes to just where people need to go from and where people need to go to. But that's not all you need to do. You need to make parking, I'm sorry, you need to make parking more expensive. You need to encourage people to save $10,000 a year by not having a car. And the way you do that is by making parking more limited. So what you don't do is build another parking garage. You need to make parking cost something if the parking is at places that are served by mass transportation. So you have people shifting. So then when you do that on the streets of your town or when you do that on the highways that go from one city to another, you have people in the habit of taking the bus. So that way you get people in the habit of riding the bus. The streets are quieter. You can even have the buses be electric so that they're really quiet. And that way you know where to build trains. And then what you also do is you want to build trains on the major highways. We need to put an immediate moratorium on widening interstate highways. No more widening interstate highways. That's under the general heading of you don't build more fossil fuel infrastructure if you're trying to get away from fossil fuels because that infrastructure locks you in to 20 or 30 years of more fossil fuels. We need to be phasing that out, not building more fossil fuel infrastructure. And then when we do that, by the time we do that, the Green New Deal has served to get these big corporations off of our backs so that the local 
restaurant scene is not dominated by the big out-of-town corporations that just want to siphon money out of your city and take it back to the home office and put it on Wall Street and use it to speculate and gamble. So we need to get the big national chains off of our backs in restaurant and retail. And when we do that, different localities will have a local flavor because you'll have local local business people wanting to start businesses, wanting to start restaurants, wanting to start little shops. And that'll give every locality a different flavor and it'll be much cooler to travel from place to place. What we have now when we go on a vacation is we want to get into a an aluminum tube that goes 35,000 mile, 35,000 feet up into the air and then comes down on this little highly commercialized island paradise. And so you have sun and surf and that's nice, but it's very commercialized. And the only people you get to know along the way are the servants in the hotel. We could be getting to know a lot of interesting people along the way if we traveled more by train and less by plane. And when we do this, think of how many jobs are being created. So we get to an economy that actually, honestly, truly focuses on job creation instead of focusing on corporate profits. Because when politicians and big corporations talk about creating jobs, they're not talking about jobs, they're talking about profits. When Amazon wanted to go to New York City, they're not talking about jobs for the 99%. They're talking about jobs for the 1% and profits for the 1%. Meanwhile, New York City is supposed to give away $2 billion in tax credits to a company that paid no federal taxes to begin with. It is a racket. So we need to focus. If we want jobs, then let's focus on jobs and not profits. They're two different things. Now let's talk about another industry, which is number six, organic farming. So agribusiness wants you to think that they are the way to solve world hunger, but the opposite is true. Organic farms are more productive of nutritional food per acre than agribusiness. But see, agribusiness measures its success by profits, not jobs. Plus, they come into your state or your region and buy up land and push the land, push the price of land out of reach to the average farmer. It is a classic example of poor use of resources. In fact, it is a perverse use of resources. To use this land to serve at the altar of corporate profits instead of using the land to do what it's supposed to do, which is produce food. The land should be used to produce healthy, nutritious food. The land should not be used to produce genetically modified corn and genetically modified soybeans while destroying the water supply, destroying pollinators, using lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of pesticides which is the reason why Monsanto exists to begin with. They were big in the pesticide business before they ever got into the food business. They are the manufacturers of Agent Orange, which was used to kill all the forests in Vietnam. That's important work. But it's companies like this that, that run the show. It's companies like this 
that get a lot of money out of the farm bill. It's companies like this that buy the right to do their work as a monopoly. It's companies like this that have reduced the number of farmers year after year after year and they want to do the same thing to other countries and they are doing the same thing to other countries but what we don't need is less farmers. What we need is more farmers. We need more farmers per acre. And until that business is inherently profitable, it needs to be subsidized. But it doesn't just need to be subsidized. We need to completely shift the possession of land and the use of land from agribusiness to organic farming. Here's one benefit of organic farming, and that is the farm, depending on how it's set up, but the farm can become a carbon sink because our organic farming quite often uses methods associated with the word agroforestry. So you have you know, trees on your farm. The trees can serve as a fence for livestock. The trees can serve as food. Quite often the livestock can graze or browse on the trees for its food or that can, food can be saved for humans. And when you're doing this, you have, you know, you have a multi-level food system. You have the tall trees and the short trees and you have plants underneath. So you have a multi-layered forest producing food. And one thing that does is that it's a carbon sink. So all the, the, so the trees and the grasses and the flowers and the vegetable plants are constantly in the process of absorbing carbon from the air and putting it into the ground. Whenever you see really fertile soil that's black, it's called loamy soil. It's because it has a lot of carbon in it. So we, we need to use our forests and our organic farms to absorb carbon and put it into the ground. And we need to be doing that on a large scale because we really don't know how far along we are in the process of warming the planet. When we put a molecule of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it will last, last a thousand years unless we do something to more rapidly absorb the carbon from the atmosphere. So also people who are expert, so we're talking about green new jobs. We're talking about what jobs and industries we can create by managing our resources much, 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 much better than we do now. So people who are expert in organic farming will know things like integrated pest management because we're no longer using neurotoxin pesticides to kill the bugs. We're going to let bugs kill bugs and we're going to let birds kill bugs. We don't need to be uh, drenching our food in neurotoxins. So the way integrated pest management works is that you allow your ecosystem to do your pest control. If you have a good collection of native plants, then they're going to just provide the basis for an ecosystem that has lots of bugs. Some of them are herbivorous bugs and some of them are carnivorous bugs. But that way things stay in balance and you don't have an outbreak of pests that are going to destroy uh, anything. People who are expert in pest management say agribusiness is a lays the groundwork for pest outbreaks. You kill all the bugs and then one bug comes in that thrives on your crop and you have to kill it and it's this escalation of more pests and more pesticides. So I've got about a minute left. Let me tell you what to expect next time. So the topic has been green new jobs. 
when we implement the Green New Deal, we'll, we will be creating jobs, we will be creating industries, and the people who oppose these policies are the people who are working for the people who have a lot to lose. And in other words, they're making money off of business as usual. So when you hear on the mainstream media, oh, the Green New Deal is too expensive, well, that's nonsense. Next time we'll be talking about jobs that we can create in the realm of forestry, in the realm of native plant landscaping. We'll be talking about jobs that we can create in the realm of tree planting. We will be talking about jobs that we can create in the area of labor organizing. We'll talk about jobs that we can create in the area of worker-owned businesses. We'll be talking about jobs that we can create as journalists. And the list goes on and on and on. Our time is up. Thank you for joining me. Hope you have a nice day. Come back soon.